uh, I'm on now. It's been wonderful being, you guys are just fabulous. It's a real, real joy. I, I usually get to feel quite tired by this time in a conference like this with this intensity, and, but I just feel like I'm just getting started. I thought, I thought I'd introduce you to my family <clears throat> first. That's little Andy. And uh, my granddaughter, name, this is my granddaughter who found him. She, she was going home from school one day with a friend's mother and persuaded the mother to stop at a pet store because she's wanting a puppy. And her mom wanted to get one because they've already got two dogs. And, and so she stops there and the next thing she calls me on her cell phone. She was like nine years of age. Oh, Papa, please come, Papa. Oh, Papa, you've got to come, please, Papa. And I, but I, Caitlin, I've got other things. Come, oh, come, I'm, I'm going just like two blocks down. So, all right, I'll come. And I looked at it and that little thing. And, and you, you, you put it in the palm of your hand. I picked it up and put it in the palm of my hand. And those big brown eyes, the, the eye contact, phenomenal. <laughs> just looks right in your eyes. And I held it like this. So you, can fit it in the, you could fit it in the palm of your hand when he was tiny like that. His eyes right at me, and he looked at me, and he said, Buy me. <laughs> he was a holy terror for the first month. But, uh, and uh, today? <laughs> That's uh, little Andy. <clears throat> and then... My wife, that was at a banquet at Fuller Seminary honoring her uh, for her work as chaplain to student wives. And they put on a big, big deal and all, uh, all the fuller. So that's my, my wife, Kathleen. And uh, just uh, one more little picture of her. I would, I'd hate the news to get back to her that I showed you Andy's picture. <laughs> and, and didn't show you her, her picture. <laughs> so that's my wife, Kathleen. <clears throat> um, it's at this stage in a, in a conference like this that I start to get a little frustrated at the fact that I'm not going to cover all the material I intended to. So let me just warn you right up front. Uh, uh, and it doesn't matter because... Uh, uh, I, I'm, uh, if we don't finish it all, it doesn't matter. There are lots of resources I can point you to. Uh, but I, I do want to take a short time, uh, the first part of this evening, to, to f wrap up my discussion with you on reactive depression or the, the grief response. And I, I want to just reiterate a couple of points uh, and that is that being able to, to know how to grieve is an essential spiritual discipline. I say that because I honestly believe God has put the mechanism for grieving in us, designed it into us, in such a way that not to utilize that gift, that that he has given us. 
And to experience pain and unnecessary suffering because we don't utilize that gift, is, it must hurt God's heart. I, I, I think God grieves, you know that? I think he grieves. God loses too, feels the loss. And, and I, I, I hope that you could make this a passion, particularly pastors, that, and, and preach about, teach about it. We don't. We don't teach our kids how to deal with loss. And I've, I've been somewhat passionate about that with my family. When my oldest grandson and, and, and the second grandson were like five and four years of age, no, maybe it was six and, six and five or something like that, when they were very young, I had bought them a little model airplane. This is a thing where you could, you, you put it, you screw it up here and into a beam, and then the plane's on the end of a string, and then it flies, it flies outwards, you know, and flies round and round and round like that. And I, out of my, I have a, we call it a lanai, which is a sort of, sort of an enclosed, uh, glassed-in patio area. It's an outdoor you know, it's an outdoor sort of family area. And I, I put it into the, the beam and it was going round and round. They were jumping up and down, jumping. And Vincent was tall enough at that point. He jumped up, put his hand up, and the aeroplane hit his hand. And the whole thing came crashing down onto the floor. Splinters, you know. And he looked at it, frozen, you know, like this. And he looked at me. And, and he really didn't know what to do. Uh, and they were having so much fun, and suddenly that fun isn't there in the morning. And have I done something wrong? Is Papa going to, you know, be angry? I mean, he looked at me and he looked back, and oh, he just burst out crying. Just started to cry. Now, no, a typical parent would react to that. How? What way do you think a typical parent would react to that? Quickly pick up the pieces and go buy another airplane, right? No, I, I know. I say, oh, oh, Vincent, it's okay. Come on. Let's just sit down here. Let's sit, Alan, you sit there. Well, let me sit here. Now, this is a sad thing. We've lost something. Vincent's sad. Let's just, be sad. Let's just be sad for a little bit, okay? Let's just be sad. I gave them permission to be depressed. Because that's what it's all about. And I, I don't know, it didn't last too long. Because having given them feelings to f feel sad about their loss, they let it go. And we went and found something else to do. And to this day, Vincent often reminds me, he's now nearly 24, he often reminds me by the way, he's just left today. Uh, my wife told me he's taken going with a, young, a group of young adults going down to Mexico on a mission trip to go and do some work down there. But he often reminds me about that experience. Papa, you know, you remember that day I broke the aeroplane? <laughs> and you said it's okay to cry and be sad. So, <clears throat> it, it, it is an important skill. And I, as, whether you're a parent a grandparent, a pastor, Christian leader, whatever. Uh, this, this is neglected. And thriving doesn't happen if you don't know how to say goodbye to things, if you don't, can't able to deal with your losses. So I want to underscore that. I, 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 I sort of, uh, now that I've got my pointer, I can 
sort of draw on the wall and ask you just to imagine. I, I, I drew the valley, the Depression Valley, which sort of goes down like that and up, and here's where the loss occurs, and then you go down and it goes down, 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 and then it, it, it bottoms out. As, you, as your mind is dealing and trying to understand the loss, and then in a normal, healthy response, it goes back up again. And how we tend, when it's starting to go down, we tend to build this bridge. We don't want to go down there. That's just too painful for us. So, can I replace it? I told you a couple of stories about trying to substitute and replace. But I'll give you one more story. And this is a, a client of mine. <coughs> Excuse me. Could you pass me my water? It's right on the floor there. Thanks, John. But <coughs> there was... Um, a client, his name was Frank. I remember him well. He was a civil engineer also, structural engineer, so we had things in common. And he, he was referred by his cardiologist because the cardiologist had determined that he had given him a stress test and all the rest, that he was in bad shape, that his, he was in serious risk of, a, of an infarction, of, of a heart attack, and his life was at, at risk. But he refused to, to engage in any sort of... Um, Treatment. So, as a cardiologist, all the best I can offer you is you go and see a friend of mine who's a psychologist, maybe he can help you. So, he came in and sat down, and we shared a little bit and talked about I, I'm, I'm intrigued being a former civil engineer, uh, you know, how you design buildings for Los Angeles with the earthquake stuff there. You know, I, I, it seems overwhelming to me that you can build a building that can withstand in, in the world's greatest earthquake area. And he shared some, some of those the thoughts. And finally I said to him, my friend, well, you know, I think let's get on with it. Now, you, you know, you're here because uh, your cardiologist has referred you. And, and, and we, uh, we got to, to talking about a few things. And, and we shifted to his wife. And his wife was not, uh, it, it was clearly not a happy marriage, not a bad marriage. One day he came in. He looked a little bit down in the mouth and sat down and said, oh, my wife left me yesterday. She says she can't tolerate me anymore. Quite frankly, I understand perfectly. He was really the most obnoxious person I have had to deal with for a long time. I, if I was his wife, I would have let him, left him a long time ago. But she'd walk out on him. I said, well, Frank, gee, that's, that's sad. You know, I think we need to talk about that. I, I think I should help you do some process some of that. Oh, no, 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 forget about that. That's not a problem. Oh, no, no. This weekend, this weekend, he said, I'm going to hit the single bars in Los Angeles and I'm going to find me another wife. I said, Frank, you can't do that. Substitution doesn't work. You can't do that. Ah, of course I can. Yeah. No, anyway, I wasn't going to argue with him. And we finished out the session. I was starting what I call it type A counseling where you deal with the stress issue and see if we can get the stress level down and all of that. And uh, off he went. I didn't see him for a couple of weeks and finally he came in, sat down. Now he was really depressed. I said, well, Frank, how's it uh, been going? Uh, he said, I... Last two weekends, I've been going around all the single bars. I think I know every single one of them in the Los Angeles area. I went to every one of them. 
I searched high and low, and I couldn't find my wife anywhere. He'd got it, you see. His wife wasn't there. He was looking for his wife. I was making out that he was looking for someone else, but she wasn't there. He wants his wife. That's who he wants. And so you, you can't substitute. There is, you, you have to deal with the loss before you can move on. Before you, before you can embrace a new partner, you've got to deal with the loss of the, of the past one. And the, <clears throat> if, you, if you have the outline, I, I want to pick up on three and talk a bit about necessary losses and unnecessary losses. Because... Um, and then, then uh, just a, a brief structure on how you can process loss. I just want to do a crash course in, in how to, to, to deal with the grief process. Um, and if it's not essential, if not helpful to you, maybe you can use it or, or pass it on to someone else. The first thing we have to understand is that all losses fall into two categories, necessary losses and unnecessary losses. Necessary losses are typically what happens in stage-of-life issues. It, it's perfectly normal to become depressed when you reach retirement. Even though you may have dreamt of the day you would be free for years and years. <clears throat> you have to assume sometimes that a given life situation is inevitably going to deliver some loss. I, I tell the story of my daughter getting married. And, and I had to, you know, how, how I was so naive in not expecting the, the, that there would be a loss associated with that happy event. Each stage of life. Again, brings losses. I think every time you reach a decade point and your birthday is traumatic. It was traumatic when I turned 30. Oh, that's downhill from here on, man. Then it was when I turned 40. Then when I turned 50 and then 60. Each one of those decades have been sort of, you know, knocks on the head, wake up sort of thing. And, and then I turned 70. I dread the day I turn 80. And this is a little way off yet, but I, I still dread it. But, it. but it's a necessary loss, you see. <clears throat> and, and what is important? What is important in dealing with those necessary losses? Really two things. Go ahead and do your grieving. It's okay. It's okay to be sad when you turn 30, okay? <laughs> or 40, or 50, or whatever. It's okay to be sad when your last child leaves home. And you face the empty nest. Mind you, uh, I, I think empty nests are a thing of the past. <laughs> they keep coming back. Can't, you can't get rid of them. That, the problem is how on earth you get rid of these kids, you know. <laughs> or every one of my kids got married and then, no, oh, they come back again. I've got to clear out the rooms I'd taken over from them. You know, they can come back there. But, but you, 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 
You have to embrace the loss. You almost get up the courage to celebrate it. Hallelujah! I'll turn 80 one day, okay? I'm glad I turned 70 because I came close to not turning 70. Surgeon told my wife when, I, when they wheeled me in for my bypass surgery, he said, it's pretty bad. 50-50 chance he won't make it. And uh, when he told her, my wife, I, I wonder why she vanished when I was waiting to go into surgery. Right, to see her. She just gone, had to go and cry somewhere else. She didn't want me to see her crying. It, it, you know, it, it, <laughs> it sort of shakes you up a little bit. But, you, but you, you have to celebrate these. Necessary losses must be celebrated. Because in the final analysis, and the second thing you've got to do, you've got to put it in the proper perspective. You've got to put it in the proper perspective. And the perspective, and this is where we as Christians have the upper hand. I don't know. I have no idea how a non-Christian grieves his or her losses. You know, it, it should be grief from beginning to end because there's nothing for them. If this life is all there is, go blow your brains out. I understand perfectly why people commit suicide. Perfectly. If there's nothing else. But for the believer, this is only temporary. I wish I could spend more time with you in 2 Corinthians. Go, go to 2 Corinthians chapter 5. Uh, there are several metaphors you will find in 2 Corinthians. And uh, right from the, 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 comfort, the comforter metaphor in the opening chapter to, to the, 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 the perfume in, in chapter 2 of 2 Corinthians, um, we, we are the fragrance of Christ, the aroma of Christ. To some, the smell of death. Because you see, perfume, anything that smelled good in, in those days meant that a body had been embalmed. Perfume was used to embalm bodies. Some, when you smelt something good and walked into a house, it's because there was a dead person there. It's the smell of death. To some, we have the smell of death, but to others, we have the smell of life. It's amazing that Paul says that because in those days, you didn't use perfume just to smell good. No one would wear perfume. It would be stupid. People would think you were dead. Can you imagine? Yeah, you're walking around. But he's dead. Why is he standing up? Knock him down. Let's get... And then and the, and the, the, the metaphor of perfume then shifts to the metaphor of the latter in, 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 in chapter 3. Go, go and read Second Corinthians, the first ch- six chapters, when you get a chance. And just follow these metaphors. And then, then there's the metaphor of the letter, the letter written on the heart. Yeah, they were in Corinth, they were mad at, at this Paul, this thing, he's not the true apostle. And you know what they asked him? They said, look, could you get a letter of reference from someone? What? Get a, letter, get a reference to say that you are an apostle. And he's mad at them. He's angry at them. What do you mean get a letter of, 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 of a reference? You are the, my letter. It's written on your heart. Not on tablets of stone, but on, on the flesh of your heart with the Holy Spirit. You're my letter. You're my witness. Why do I, have to need, a, why do I need another letter? And we are, and then the metaphor there is the letter that is read by everybody. You're a, a letter that's read by everybody, each one of us, you and me. But we are all letters that get read. And my wife uh, 
This is a great theme for her. For her, significance in her life is leaving a lasting impression. And when she meets a stranger in the elevator, I want to leave an impression, a lasting impression on that life. I want to leave a lasting impression on my grandchildren, on my neighbor. And that's a beautiful metaphor of the letter. And then, and then the third image comes uh, in chapter 3 from the story of the Shekinah glory where, where uh, Paul says, we with unveiled faces all reflect the Lord's glory are being transformed into his likeness. And I'm not exaggerating, but every morning when I shave, Occasionally now I don't shave anymore when I'm retired. I think, why shave? But every morning when I shave and I look in the mirror and I'm looking at the wrinkles and the gray hairs and so on, I, I ask myself the question, my word, am I looking a little bit more like Jesus today? The thing about this transforming business is you don't see it. If you did, I would be very suspicious of it. It's one of those things that it's only there when you can't see it. And then we have the metaphor in chapter 4 of the earthen vessel. And then we get to chapter 5, and this is really the, the point I want to, I'm applying, is that now we know that if the earthly tent we live in is destroyed. This is the tent. <laughs> Paul was a tent maker, remember that? And, and, and imagine the nomad. A tent wasn't more than a little piece of some animal skin sewn together, quite frankly, and made into a little thing you would throw over a little pole. It wasn't a fancy tent like we use in our camping world today. But Paul, Paul's metaphor is our life is that little tent. Little, little you know, Sod, sod thing that we, 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 we make to cover and we have, we have this earthly tent. Oh, we long, we long to be moved to the next stage. Uh, now we know that if the earthly tent we live in is destroyed, we have a building in from God, an, an eternal house in heaven, not made with human hands. Meanwhile, we groan. Oh boy, <laughs> do we groan. But you see, the perspective is, if all you have is that tent, that miserable little tent, go blow your brains out, man. There's no point in going on. So I don't understand how Christian, how non-Christians can deal with loss. Each, every loss in life, when that's all you've got, everything you lose must be a terrible blow. But it's not for us. And so necessary losses must be celebrated and then you've got to put them in perspective. That's the second point. Put them in perspective. Put them in the perspective of eternity. And if you get fired from that job, take it and put it in the light of eternity, in the light of what lies ahead. How important is this issue? How significant is this loss? Can I let it go? Now, but there are also unnecessary losses. And interestingly, they are more difficult for us to deal with than the necessary ones. 
unnecessary losses. We, we create them through something called attribution. Many unnecessary losses are losses because we define them as losses or we label them as losses. We attribute to them loss. And so something happens and we respond to it as if it's the end of the world. I used to have great difficulty making mistakes. I, I tell you, uh, it I was a very vulnerable point for me. I mean, if I made a mistake, I, I, I would be depressed for two months, three months, easily. I, I didn't ever want to make a mistake. It, it was such a threat to me. I, I lacked what, what I now call, I lacked the courage of imperfection. Now I claim it is my right to make mistakes. And you have no right to criticize me for them. It's my right. Because I'm human. I'm a clay pot. And inevitably I will make mistakes. And, but you see, you attribute to a mistake. What I was doing, I was attributing to the mistake I'd made some significant loss. That means I'm not a worthy person. That means I'm not a valuable person. And this shapes a sort of perfectionism, you see. And you've always got to get it right. And you've always got to get approval. I, I could not accept rejection. I dreaded it when I wrote my first book. I dreaded having to submit a manuscript and have it critiqued and then get it rejected. You know, I think I would have died. I've written 28 books. Fortunately, I've never had to submit a manuscript for approval. They've always come and asked me, will you? Sure. <laughs> and if they came and said, would you submit a manuscript so we can see if we want to publish it? I would never write a book. It's still... Rejection is still a little issue for me, but fortunately, I, the, the, year I, the day I turned 70, I, I, I noticed a shift. <laughs> no longer matters so much anymore. If you all booed me at the end of this conference, well, not even the end of the conference, end of this evening, <laughs> I'll be here tomorrow. I'll be here, bright and early, and I'll do my shtick again. Um, because but, but you see, I'm, I'm illustrating the point that there's some losses that are unnecessary simply because we define them as losses just change your attribution ask the question is it really a loss is it really a loss We cause losses through our stupidity. Now, I make a difference between stupidity and my right to make mistakes. Because I can make mistakes that are not stupid, but they're mistakes. By stupidity, I mean carelessness. 
Obviously, I should have known better. You know, it's, it's, a, it's a different sort of mistake. But, <clears throat> and so, you know, stop being stupid. <laughs> Learn from your mistakes. You should never have, you should never make the same mistake twice. In fact, depression is all a, a learning exercise. You should learn from every single depression. Every loss you experience should go into that bank, that storage bank in your brain, as a lesson to be learned. Every, when, the way we respond to a loss says, speaks volumes. For our values, things we, we, we are putting too much value on, that shouldn't have that much value. And I'm going to tell a story in a little while to illustrate that point. We create losses by not adjusting our values from previous depressions. And even unnecessary losses must be grieved. Okay, what are some grief rules? Let's just uh, let's, let's clarify some rules that you should keep in mind about grief. Remember, let me just back up a moment. Grief is all about the grief process. We go into the depression, we become introspective. Our brain wants to explore. We want to talk about the loss. We want to share it. And, and it's very good to be able to externalize this loss with someone else. Talk your losses out with someone else. If you don't talk it out, you don't develop the perspective on the loss that you should be developing. So you talk it out in order to be able to develop a perspective on the, to put the loss in the right perspective, you have to share it with someone else. You will never do it just through your own thinking. And and the process then is discovery Getting it in perspective, letting it go. Some, 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 some improved rules. The greater the loss, the deeper that valley has to be. In fact, there is, um, there is clearly, uh, um, for each of us it's different, but there's clearly for each of us, a, a certain depth of depression that is necessary for us to experience in order to complete the grieving. So, uh, uh, that, and closely to, tied to that is that the deeper the valley, you follow, the deeper, the, the greater, the more significant the loss, the deeper the valley has to be. As a, you say, some, some, some depressions are very shallow. I mean, I might <coughs> be going to work in the morning and I'm late for an appointment and I get a flat tire. And for me, that's a loss, you see, because I'm losing time now and the hassle of having to put in. And when I get back in the car, I'm feeling a little depressed, right? And, and, and even then, I'm feeling my value is probably just a little bit like that. Because by the time I get to the office, it's, it's gone, finished, I'm over with. Uh, so... But other, other losses have much deeper meaning, you see. And so that, now, the deeper the loss, the longer it takes 
to complete the grieving process. So there's a relationship. The more significant the loss, the more time you must allow for it. In fact, it can be very helpful to sort of monitor yourself and try to come up with some idea of how much time does a given type of loss take to grieve. I've taught many clients this. It's very effective. I, I have a pretty accurate idea of how long I take to grieve certain things. Now, <clears throat> for example, if I get a traffic ticket, it's quite a loss. You know, it, it, and it's not just the money. Not just the money. Not that I've got lots of money. But, but I, I don't put a lot of value in. If, if I can fix a problem with money, it's not really a, it's not really a problem anymore. Now, I use this with my kids all the time. Honey, if, if, if the problem is money, hallelujah, you know, so I can do some, I'll write another book, I'll do something. I, I'll get some money somehow. If you can fix a problem, if you can pay to fix a problem, you don't have a problem. It's a problem you can't pay to fix. Those are the real problems, you know. They get a traffic ticket. And it's, it's not the money, the fine, although I do feel bad about that. It's the humiliation. Traffic cops in California, motorcycles, jack boots, you know, moustache. Everyone wears a moustache. And they pull up, you can see them in the rearview mirror, and you stop, and, and they get off their motorcycle, and they take forever. You know. And I want to scream at them, hurry it up, man. And then they walk like John Wayne. I watch them in the rearview mirror coming up, you know. Then they knock on your window. And you wind it down. And then they ask this stupid question. You know that you did make do something wrong, don't you? What am I supposed to say? No, did I really? I was, on one occasion, I had to go do a radio program. And <clears throat> I, was in, I was running a little late. Traffic was heavy. And as I got to the, uh, the complex where the radio station is, I... I needed to pull left across traffic into the parking lot and the traffic was heavy coming down and I am barely five minutes away live on a radio program, all right? In five minutes, I'm trying to get into the parking lot. And try, but there's a little gap in the traffic. Enough for me to... I didn't endanger anybody's life. But the person who was coming towards me put his foot on the brake and the red light at the back of his car lit up. And that's all a cop needs. It doesn't, it doesn't matter how safe it actually is, if that person applies their brake, it's a, it's a violation. And the next thing, I'm in the parking lot and looking for a parking space. Here's old John Wayne again, you know, with a moustache. Slowly, you know, it's now four minutes. So I open the, he opened, I open the window. I say, officer, I'm sorry. Uh, you know, I don't think I endangered a life, but I'm not going to debate it. Uh, uh, just do what you have to do. The problem is I'm on a radio program in four minutes, and I really have to get there quickly. I'm sorry, sir. 
This will take as long as is necessary. And then he turns slowly to go back to his motorcycle to go and fetch his ticket book. I mean, why couldn't he have brought it with him? He needs some management here. And, oh my, I, I, you know, I, I was a little late. Somebody had to just stand in for me until I got there. And now I'm depressed. Now, traffic tickets are an eight-hour depression for me. Now, see, see, what happens? Now, it doesn't matter. Even, even if that cop had said to me, it's okay, so I, I want... Uh, you, it's all right. It's all right. It, it wasn't that bad. Uh, you're, you're free to go. My, does my depression lift at that moment? No. Because you see, there's a biological process at work. Even this is a psychological thing. When I perceive this loss, my biology, my whole body biology, because you can feel it in the stomach and so on, starts a process. And that process has to run its course. Now that's an important point to know. In marriage, for example, uh, it, so it, it's eight hours for me. And I fight it, and I try to shake it off, and it's, but no way. Just give in, get into the valley, give yourself permission to be sad, and let the grieving take its place. It doesn't go away. Now, this is important because in, in many reactive depressions, the expectation is that if we replace the loss, the depression should lift. Now, as I said earlier, a, a, a really bad disagreement with my wife can be a lengthy depression. That could be a three-day depression. And one day, when I left South Africa, the engineering firm I worked for gave me a pair of gold cufflinks engraved. They were special for me. And I, you know, I always buy shirts that I could wear cufflinks with because they were very special for me. But for a while I couldn't get shirts with holes in them, so I put pack, they were they were somewhere. I know I, I, for six months or a year later I didn't know where they were, and <clears throat> I was going to work. And finally I had a shirt I could use cufflinks, and I was in a hurry to get to work. And I uh, I looked for my cufflinks, and I couldn't find them. And I was getting agitated and depressed. So finally I abandoned them and I went off to work. I had no sooner got to work when the phone rang and it was my wife. And she said to me, Honey, guess what? I found your cufflinks. Silence. Honey, did you hear what I said? I found your cufflinks. Can't you show a little appreciation? Well, that's all it took. That's all it took. And I exploded. And we had a big fight. Her expectation was that you lost your cufflinks, you got depressed, but I found them, and when I deliver the cufflinks to you, that depression should go. And it didn't go. It went. And of course, 
that three-day depression became a five-day depression. The, the, the point I'm making is that the, this has to run its course. And, and, and if you give in, then, then it, it certainly does. Um, so the deeper the depression, the longer it takes. The more we allow, give in to the depression, the faster it resolves. So if we, if we fight it, it's going to prolong. But if we give in to it and cooperate with it, we can expect a shorter outcome. So my personal project has been how to shorten my grieving responses. I've got traffic tickets down to about one day now. <laughs> Though I haven't had a traffic ticket for a long time. Um, Resolution comes when we fully understand the loss. And we fully understand loss. Now I need to just pause here for a moment. Because to fully understand the loss does take a little effort. In counseling people, I I, I use a model um, with them that breaks losses down into three categories. Real losses. Tangible. You can see it. You can see the broken camera on the floor. You can see the ticket in your hand. It's going to cost you money. It's real. Um, A rejection letter is real. Divorce papers, real. So that's, that's the group. The second group are losses that are imagined. Imagined losses. Don't know if they're real or not. Patient once, I just started to see him, and about two weeks into seeing him, he came in one day, this was some years ago, he, he was really looking down. I said, what's the matter? He said, he was an older gentleman. The doctors just told me I have leukemia. Same problem as my father had doesn't think I have more than a year to live. Deeply depressed. Um, I'm sorry, I need to correct that story. He, he came in and said, I have the symptoms of leukemia. The doctor hadn't said anything. I have the symptoms of leukemia. I, I think it's like my father. I said, well, have you been to the doctor? No. Oh. What we have then is an imagined loss, because we don't know if it's a loss yet. I want you to go to the doctor, I want you to go and have it checked out. When he came back the next time, confirmation, he does have leukemia. He was right, he knew the symptoms, because his father had it. But, you see, the thing is that you cannot grieve imagined losses. If, you, if you're imagining that somebody is criticizing you, if, if you are imagining that, that they... they, 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 they they sort of letting people go from job and that your job might be in jeopardy. If, if you have a lump in your breast, my, my wife, when, when she in our mid-twenties one day, found that she had a lump in her breast and she, she, we, we really panicked. We kids, we didn't know what that really meant. And, and we couldn't get into the doctor for three or four days and so for three or four days the lump was there. Obviously something was wrong. And, and my imagination, that first night I went to bed and by the time I fell asleep, I had buried my wife I tried to make plans for my little, two little girls. We had two girls at that time. You know, you know what I'm talking about. Imagination runs right. And you've got a vivid imagination. Boy, you can turn anything into a massive loss. 
Now, the problem with imagined losses, you cannot grieve them. The only way you can deal with them is to convert them into a real loss or abandon them. So you take that lump to the doctor. So you go to your boss and say, boss, look, I am worried. I know that you're downsizing here. I need to know, I need to know whether my job is in jeopardy. But, but you know, I don't want to do that because if, if he says, yes, your job is in jeopardy, then I will know it's bad, you know. No, 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 you don't get the point. You can't grieve a loss that's imagined. We've got to convert it into a real loss, and then we can start the grieving process. If your job is in jeopardy, it's better that you know it. We were designed to live with reality, not with imagination. Fears that are imagined, we, we have no defense for, we have no mechanism for. It's got to be real. And that takes courage. So, imagine losses, you, you've got to convert it. It's, it's either, you've got to... Now, the third loss it, it, are, are those losses that are threatened but haven't yet occurred. My mother is dying. Don't know when she's going to die, but she's dying. And the loss is being threatened. Um, and those are the most difficult to deal with because you don't want to hasten the loss. <laughs> I don't want to go and help my mother die quickly so I can get it over with. And so I have to live with the threat of loss that hasn't yet actualized. And so I don't know, do I start the grieving process and then pull back? Or do I pull back and not even start the grieving process? And pastors know well that often we have to deal with these threatened losses. And, and how do you counsel people that way? Do I encourage them to, you know, it's going to happen, let's just accept that and, and, and do our grieving? Or is it not going to happen? And it's, it's, it's a very difficult call. There's, there's nothing easy. It's very difficult. I was seeing in, in therapy once, being in the Hollywood area in, in Los Angeles, uh, you get every now and again, you get movie stars as clients and so on. And, and one, one, one client I was seeing who, uh, it was more her husband that was prominent in the movie industry. She had done some work earlier, but she was married to a prominent uh, uh, star. And uh, one day she came in and said that her husband has packed up, moved to New York, he's moved in with another younger woman, he doesn't want to be married anymore, typical Hollywood scenario. And I said, well, this is a grieving, I need to help you deal with this. So I, I said to her, look, look, why don't we refocus our therapy? Let me focus now on some grieving stuff because this must be a bad situation, you see. She said, no, no. I'm going to pray and ask God to bring him back. Never in my life in a situation like this have I known someone to do that. She said, no, I'm, I'm going to pray. You know, I, and I'm pretty, I, you know I, I know I can ask God to bring him back, so I don't want to even start grieving. And I, I tried to caution her, but I gave her the best advice I could. Then she, the next thing she said was, well, I think I'm going to pack up. I'm going to move to New York as well. I'm going to be right there, so he'll know I'm there. I said, if you do that, 
you're putting the nails in the coffin because he will be angry at you. It's not going to win his, uh, uh, his affection. I, 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 I think it was a, I, my advice was I thought that was a bad decision. She said, no, I'm going. She packed up, moved to New York. Six months pass. One day I'm sitting in front of the television. I'm doing my little soother thing, you know, and I'm clicking and clicking. And there is a Christian radio station on. And standing on the platform is this husband and wife holding hands, giving their testimony how God intervened. How she came to New York and she was praying and praying and praying. And somehow God just worked a miracle. And they had, he had already followed through and they were divorced. And they got remarried. And then she said, and I was seeing this Christian psychologist. <laughs> oh, how humiliating. I was seeing this Christian psychologist in Los Angeles. And his advice was that I shouldn't do what I did. And for just a, a fleeting moment, I felt bad. And then I came back and gave myself the advice I give all my students and anyone else who works with people, doctors and whoever. I gave, I gave myself that advice. We are all imperfect. We give the best advice we can. And if we make a mistake, it's the best we can do. And you just have to learn to live with that. But, but threatened losses are extremely difficult. Those are the ones you just have to comfort yourself to be. They just got to ride it out. Do you speed it up, slow it down? That's a judgment call. Sometimes I've suggested to someone, you know, your mother could live longer than... The doctor says, let's, let's just pull back and wait. And when, when the appropriate time comes, then we start the grieving process. Other times I've said, you know what, I think we need to move forward and do the grieving. And it, it, when you're helping people, it's a judgment call. Now, the, the first of those is the real. And wherever possible, we try to take our losses and make them real losses. <clears throat> and, then, and then we try to understand the loss. We have to understand exactly what it is. What does this mean? And then we move to put it into perspective. And I want to close. <clears throat> and um, if there are any questions, you can put them in the box. We'll pick up on this topic in our question and answer time. But I want to uh, take you back to those wonderful words in Philippians Whatever was, was to my profit, I now consider loss. I think that what Paul was doing, saying here, was that in the light of eternity, I'm giving everything up that could mean loss to me. I'm doing my grieving ahead of time. Now, I'm not suggesting we all go out and just give away all our things, let's get rid of everything. I'm not, that's not what I'm saying. What I'm saying is that we must bring an eternal perspective to this lost thing. We've got to see it in the light of eternity. And 
whether it's real. If it's imagined, you've got to, you've got to either move it to real or, or, or dump it. There's, there's no grieving to be done there. Just, just make sure that you, your mind understands clearly there is no loss here. And then ride out the, the biological low until it's, it's gone. But the, the loss that is genuine and real, when you understand what it is, you let it go and, and, and take your fingers off it. And you can only do that when you see it in the light of eternity. Death is not the end of the world. It's only the beginning of something better. Um, it's nine o'clock already. Amazing how quickly time goes. Now we're going to take a short break in a moment. But before we break, I'm, I'm wanting to show you a, a quick video. It's only five minutes before we break. We, we a lot of talk about CBT and different types of therapy and some of you have suggested different types, types of therapy that's going on. There's always someone trying to come up with a different type of therapy and I think I have found the absolute best therapy there is. And uh, there's a, 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 a Bob Newhart. I don't know how many of you are familiar with Bob Newhart, but, but he has some ideas for us. So yeah, here's a, a five-minute lesson in quick-fix therapy that you can use, and it is absolutely fabulous. And then when it's finished, we'll, we'll take our, our, our short break. Thank you. Uh, Dr. Switzer? Uh, yes, C come in. I'm just, just washing my hands. Uh, I'm Catherine Bigman. Janet Carlisle referred me. Oh, yes. Still uh, being uh, buried alive in a box. Yes, yes, that's me. <laughs> Should I lay down? Oh, no, no, no. We don't, we don't do that anymore. Just, just have a seat. And, uh, and let, let me uh, tell you a, a bit about our, our billing. I. Um, I charge five dollars for the for the first five minutes, and and then absolutely nothing after that. How, how, how does that sound? <laughs> that sounds great. <laughs> Too good to be true, as a matter of fact. <laughs> well, I can I can almost guarantee you that that our session won't last the full uh, the full five minutes. Now, um, <laughs> we don't do any insurance billing, so you would either have to pay in in cash or by check. <clears throat> wow. Okay. And, uh, and I, I don't make change. <laughs> All right. <laughs> and go. <clears throat> go. Well, tell what? me, tell me about the problem that you wish to address. Oh, okay. Uh, well, I have this fear of being buried alive in a box. I just, I start thinking about being buried alive and I begin to panic. Has, has, has anyone ever, ever tried to, to bury you alive in a box? No, no, but truly thinking about it does make my life horrible. I mean, I can't go through tunnels or be in an elevator or in a house, anything boxy. So what, what you're saying is you're, you're claustrophobic. Yes, yes, that's it. <laughs> All right, well, uh, let's go, Catherine. I'm, uh, 
I'm going to uh, say two words to you right now. I, I want you to listen to them very, very carefully. Then I want you to take them out of the office with you and incorporate them in, into your life. Well, shall I uh, write them down? Well, it, if it makes you comfortable, it's just two words. Most, we find most people can, uh, can remember them. <laughs> okay. You ready? Yes. Okay, here they are. Stop it! Stop it? Yes, S-T-O-P, new word, I-T. So, what are you saying? <laughs> you, you know, it's funny. I, I, I say two simple words, and I cannot tell you the amount of people who say exactly the same thing you're saying. I mean, this, you know, this is not Yiddish, Catherine. This is English. Stop it. So, I should just stop it. There you go. I mean, you... you you don't want to go through life being scared of being buried alive in a box, do you? I mean, that sounds, sounds frightening. <laughs> it is. Then stop it! I can't. I mean, it's been with me no, since no, childhood. No, no, no. No, we, 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 we don't go there. Just, just stop. So I should just stop being afraid of being buried alive in a box. You got it. Good girl. Well, it's only been... It's only been three minutes, so that will be um, uh, three dollars. I only have a five, so. Well, I, I don't, I don't make change. Then I, I guess I'll take the full five minutes. Fine. All right. Well, what other uh, problems would you, would you like to address? <clears throat> Whew. Uh, I'm bulimic. I stick my fingers down my throat. Stop it! Not of some kind. Don't, don't do that. But I, I'm compelled to. My mom used to call me No, fatty. no, no. No, we, did, we don't go there. But I've been having this dream. No, we don't go there either. But my horoscope did say... We definitely don't go there. Just, <laughs> just stop it. But what, what else? Well, I have self-destructive relationships with men. Stop it! <laughs> you, you want to be with a man, don't you? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yes. Well, then stop it. <laughs> Don't be such a big baby. I wash my hands a lot. That's all right. It is? I, I wash my hands all the time. There's a lot of germs out there. Yeah, don't, don't, uh, don't worry about that one. I'm afraid to drive. Well, stop it! I mean, how, how are you going to get around? Get in the car and drive, you, you kook. Stop it! You stop it! You stop it! What's, what's the problem, Catherine? I don't like this. I don't like this therapy at all. You're just telling me to stop it. And, and, you, and you, don't, you don't like that? No, I don't. So you think we're, we're moving too fast, is that it? Yes. Yes, I do. All right, then let me, uh, let me uh, give you ten words that I, I think will uh, clear everything up for you. Uh, you, want, you want to get a pad and a pencil for this one? All right. Are you ready? Mm -hmm. All right, here are the ten words. Stop it or I'll bury you alive in a box! 
Okay. All right. Time for a break.